0: Acts 15, we're going to read down through verse 35. But some men came down from Judea. They came down because Judea and Jerusalem was higher in elevation, so they, although they're going north, they're going down. So uh, keep that in mind. They were teaching the brothers... unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension, meaning a great dissension, and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail that a conversion of the Gentiles... And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, Simon, or Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. Here's Amos chapter 9. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and our it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders, with the whole church, to choose men from among them, and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, meaning son of the Sabbath, and Silas leading men among the brothers with the following letter. Quote, the brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your mind, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those Who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And to all these words God's people say, Amen. Well, we come this morning to chapter 15 of Acts, which uh, if you just thumb a few pages to the right, you'll notice there are 28 chapters. Not that the chapters are equal in, in length. But we come to chapter 15, which has been described as the turning point in Luke's story. It's the turning point because this is the verbal center of the manuscript of the book of Acts. It's also the turning point because this this is the last time Peter is mentioned in the book of Acts. The focus now is upon Saul or Paul, the apostle As well, the focus no longer is upon Jerusalem. We'll hear of Jerusalem again when Paul goes from there to Rome. But Jerusalem, the church, is no longer at the center of the narrative and the story. The reason why this is a a transitional chapter, a turning point, is again what we saw way back when in chapter 1 at verse number 8, where Jesus told his disciples to wait for the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon them so that they would then be witnesses. Recall what we've been seeing throughout. That the Spirit of God comes and he fills us so that we might speak the word with boldness. And that's what Jesus told his first disciples. To wait for the Holy Spirit so that you would go out and be my witnesses in Jerusalem, the capital city, Judea, that Roman province, the southern part of God's ancient kingdom, Samaria, Samaria, that borderland, that place of the, what they call the half-breeds, and to the ends of the earth. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. With chapter 15, then the focus is now the gospel is going to all the worlds. And God's kingdom, as it is expanding its wall and its boundary and its border, is now including within that kingdom peoples from all tribes and tongues and languages and nations. And so chapter 15 is very pivotal in our story. It's also a pivotal story, as you see here, because it's the first big theological controversy that the Christian church had to face. Now, you might think that the church, if you could go to any era of the church, if you could go back in time to any place where you would find the church in its purity, you would find the church in its golden age, if you would find the church without all the drama, all the sin, all the mistakes, all the problems that you and I face and that we see in the church today, no doubt you would say, well, I would go back to the church of the apostles. And many of us have come out of church traditions where, uh, from time to time, you know, we would always hear, uh, that tried and true phrase, you know, brothers and sisters, we've got to get back to the age of the apostles. And if we would just get back to the age of the apostles, all would be well. You know what I'm saying, right? What's the problem with that? It's a bunch of sinners, right? It's a bunch of sinners. Now, we know, we know where Brother John Calvin would go. He would go back to the age of John Calvin. He would take his little cat, Calvin, and uh, transform himself back into that great uh, golden city of Geneva. But uh, the, mo- uh, the rest of us would probably say, I would go farther back. I, I would go all the way back to the age of the apostles. And, then, and let me just pop the bubble. Burst your bubble this morning. There, there is no golden age of the church on earth. This is the apostolic church. The apostles are there at that Jerusalem gathering, that Jerusalem council. The elders, the apostles, the church, and here you have Antioch and Jerusalem, two of the, uh, of, of, of the five ancient uh, key cities of the church. And they're here because of theological controversy. They're here because of heresy. There were some Christians, some believers in the church in Jerusalem who went unauthorized, we see that in verse 24, to Antioch, and they were teaching contrary to the Old and New Testament, we'll see. Contrary to Jesus and the apostles, they were teaching that sinners to be saved had to keep the entire law of God. So much for the golden age, where everybody believed everything in common and everybody had uh, all the same theology and everybody everybody was pure in their doctrine it wasn't until those evil christians later on who set up their councils and constantine were told by, by some people or the da vinci code says the council of the Council of Nicaea, you know, messed the church up. Or later on, you know, uh, there's all these views of the church when it finally reached this point where it, where it went downhill. No, the church has always been a, a, a gathering, a ragtag gathering of sinners. So let's keep our minds straight on that this morning. Notice the controversy here uh, is that there are some men from Judea. We see them in verse 1. Uh, and again, you see them in verse 5. So they come to Antioch, and then when the Antioch delegation goes to Jerusalem, they again are there, some believers, some men from Judea, who belong to the party of the Pharisees. So these were Christian, these are Jewish brothers, who had belonged to that Pharisaical party. And they believed that Jesus was, G, uh, was the Jews, uh, the Messiah of Israel, uh, but yet they still belonged to that very strict party of the Pharisees the strict of the strict. The the most uh, uh, scrupulous of the ancient Israelites. So they believed, but yet they still had all that baggage with them. And they were saying here, they were saying here that you have to be circumcised according to the custom of Moses, or else you cannot be saved. And again, they say there in verse 5, when they get to Jerusalem, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Now, this comes right on the heels of the first missionary journey, chapter 13 and 14 where Paul and Barnabas have gone out and the gospel's been proclaimed in all these Gentile cities, they they went first of all to synagogues and some Jews believe, but they also went to the Gentiles and multitudes of Gentiles were believing, they were hearing the gospel, they were seeing the signs and wonders done and they went back, we saw there at the end of chapter 14 last Sunday, they went there and they reported about how a door of faith had been opened to the Gentiles, the church was overjoyed, the church we might say was on fire for the gospel and then there are these here who come and they pour a bucket of cold icy water on that fire. And we might say that the church always is going to have those who do these kinds of things. That when the church should have on itself that garment of praise as the prophet said, there are always going to be some amongst us who are going to, uh, who are going to have a spirit of heaviness. Here's the gospel going to Gentiles, and Jews are seeing their kingdom expanded. They're seeing the promise to Father Abraham that the stars and the sand of the sea, uh, you can't even count that, that amount. That's how many people, that's how many sons and daughters are going to belong to the family of Abraham. But yet here are these people with a spirit of heaviness, pouring a bucket of cold, icy water upon this flame of God. Trying to snuff it out. You must be circumcised. You must keep the customs, the traditions. You must keep the entirety of the law of Moses. Now, what's the problem with their little, the way it's phrased here, where, where they say that, that uh, uh, to be saved, you must be circumcised according to the custom of Moses. What's wrong with that? Just the phrase itself, according to the custom of Moses. What's wrong with that? <laughs> okay, give me one thing. Not everything. Give me one thing. Why is, why is that phrase wrong? It's not the custom of Moses. Yes? Abraham, right? The Lord, the Lord revealed this to Father Abraham. This is not a custom, this is not a tradition. And you can get a little little insight into how they were thinking. They were viewing the law of God, the the, the law that God gave to Moses, as custom, as tradition, as a ritual, as an outward thing, as merely a thing that distinguished Jews from Gentiles. And so they, they, the Gentiles, had to be circumcised to become just like us, Pharisees, to keep these customs and traditions. The problem is that God gave circumcision way before Moses was even born the father Abraham way back in Genesis 17 he revealed that law and that sacrament that sign of circumcision to father Abraham now as well notice you can get a sense of what they're saying here so you have to be circumcised according to the custom of Moses so they're already off the wrong uh, already on the wrong path Uh, they're thinking of it as a custom not as a revelation of God that he gave in that ancient of times before the law and before Moses. But notice in verse 5 there, uh, they're they're equating circumcision with the entirety of the law. So uh, in in logical discourse, this would be a part for the whole. They see circumcision as the part, and if you are circumcised, that means that you're obligated to the whole. So it's not just that you've got to be circumcised, you've got to keep the whole law of Moses to be saved, to be saved. Again, the problem was that they they viewed God giving his law through Moses on Mount Sinai down to the Israelites for generation upon generation. They were viewing that law, which God calls his covenant, they were viewing that covenant as a covenant of works. They were saying that the law of God was the way by which you earn salvation. When you're circumcised, you're set apart, and then you are obligated to keep every single of the 613 Old Testament laws. And if you do that, you are saved. That's called a covenant of works. The way in which sinners relate to God is on the basis of works of what they do, of how they are keeping dietary laws, Sabbath laws, festival laws, all the laws of the Old Testament. And that's why these are called in the New Testament, Ephesians 2, for example, Galatians, for example, they're called the circumcision party. That's what they call themselves. The circumcision party. Wouldn't that be a great party to go to? <laughs> the circumcision party. Yikes. Let me just mention, let's go back to, one, to, to, to two texts quickly uh, before we move on. Because it's important to see what the controversy was here. So again, Gentile, Jewish believers are saying that Gentiles need to be circumcised and obey the law of God in order to be saved. So if you go back to Galatians quickly, Galatians chapter two and and uh, three. I'm just going to quickly highlight a couple of verses here for you to think about uh, and and read later. Uh, we're not sure exactly when this happened, but you see there in verse eleven, your heading might see something like Paul opposes Peter. There was an, a there was a time where Paul and Peter had this controversy because Peter. Uh, who had gone to Cornelius' household and preached the gospel to a Gentile and the Holy Spirit came to Cornelius just like it did to Peter, he also was refusing to eat with Gentiles. And so Paul saw that as an affront uh, affront, and he saw that as uh, an offense because it was a practical denial of the gospel, the good news. Notice in verse 15, he goes on to say this. This is Paul speaking of that controversy. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. That was an attitude they had. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Justification is that action of God in which he declares a sinner to be righteous to be holy just like God is how can God do that because of the substitute Jesus Christ the righteous one who died was buried who rose again in our place and when by faith we receive that that all becomes ours and God declares us to be right with God to be righteous and to therefore be acceptable to God and so it's through faith in Christ that God declares us to be righteous, not by our works. And that's why we sing in our, in our hymns um, about coming to God with nothing. Coming to God with empty, open hands. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Right, we we bring nothing to God. We only receive what God gives. That's justification, and so you see that here. Now, just skip down to chapter three. There's a huge argument here, but I'm going to just dive into uh, a couple of verses. Notice verse seven, uh, verse seven or verse six. So he's asking the, the the Galatian Christians, and they're the ones that he's just gone to in chapters thirteen and fourteen. He's asking them, did they receive the Holy Spirit through faith or works? Through faith or works? And then he reminds them of Father Abraham, verse 6, just as, right? Because you, he says, you received it not by works of the law, but by the hearing of faith. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So do you know about how many years Abraham lived before Moses lived? About how many years, just in general terms? About 500 years. About 500 years. So Abraham about 500 years before Moses, right? Abraham believed God, and God credited that to him as righteousness. 500 years before God gave the Ten Commandments and all the other commandments, the law of God. Okay, that's, that's Paul's point here. Father Abraham believed, not because of his works, but because of his faith in the Savior, in the, in the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, going on then, uh, skipping all, uh, down to uh, like verse number... Oh, goodness, I should have written, should have written it down. Uh, no, actually, let's skip, let's skip to, Rom, uh, to Romans. That, that's what it was, Romans 3. I want to look at quickly. Romans 3. In Romans 3, Paul's dealing with a very similar thing. Uh, and he says, no one's righteous, of course, no, not one, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And then he tells us uh, this, that famous verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone, Jew and Gentile, right? No distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Then then notice verse 24. And, or but, are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So Christ, all his work for us, the redemption. That's the gift of God to sinners that justifies us. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by what? Faith. By faith. Now, if you skip down to chapter 4, just, again, a couple of quick verses here. It's always, it's always a quick couple of verses, but just a couple of quick verses. Um, what does the scripture say? He says, verse 3. What does the scripture say? Uh, verse 2. If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, this is Genesis chapter 15, and it was counted to him as Righteousness. And then he makes this application to you and to me. Verse 4. Now to the one who works. So you want to come to God on the basis of your works? Okay. Here's what, here's what happens. Now to the one who works, his wages, what you get in return for your works, are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And what do you think your due is? What do you think God owes you? Death, right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wage of sin is death. So you want to come to God on the basis of your works? You want to bring to God not an empty hand, but a hand full of your glowing works. You exchange that for uh, for what's your due, what do you get? You get death. That's what you get. Verse 5, though. And or but to the one who does not work. But believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Verse 9, is this blessing then only for the circumcised, the Jews, or Gentile converts, or also for the uncircumcised, the Gentiles? For we say, verse uh, nine, the second part. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? So, chapter 15, so chapter twelve. God calls Abraham out. Fifteen. Abraham believes, and God justifies him. When is Abraham circumcised? What chapter? Chapter seventeen. And uh, you, you should people, you God, you got to remember this stuff. Last, last a whole year ago, right? We, we, you should know all the nitty-gritty details. Uh, Genesis 15 happened when Abraham was 75 years old. When was he circumcised? 99 years old, right? So it's a, like 20-whatever-plus a years. He believes, and then he is circumcised. So again, how was it counted to him as righteousness, before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised and so forth. That's the issue here. Are sinners like us, Jew or Gentile alike? Are sinners like us, are human beings like us, regardless of our ethnic standing or, our, or the tribe from which we come, do we, uh, are we able to come before God and be acceptable to God and by God because of what we do or because of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ? How are you righteous? How are you righteous, brothers and sisters? By faith in Christ. By faith in Christ. That's what's going on here. So you see why this is a big deal? The gospel's just gone to these Gentiles. They've believed. And God has sent the Holy Spirit just like he did on the day of Pentecost. And now some were saying, no, 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 no. They've got to be circumcised and you've got to command them. It's necessary to keep the entirety of the law of God to be saved. It's greater than that they want to follow the the Lord as the Messiah. That's cool and all, but no, they've got to become Jews like us. And they've got to follow the strict patterns of our traditions to be saved. There's, There's a huge debate about this, of course. Why wouldn't there be verse number two? But note the response. They are then delegated out. Paul, Barnabas, some others, they're delegated out. And it's interesting, just the way that Luke describes this, um, when it says that they were sent on their way, the the verb that's used there has overtones of financial uh, uh, sending. The church in Antioch supported them. So there's a, this orderliness of the church in Antioch sending Paul, Barnabas, and some others down to uh, or up to Jerusalem. Uh, in contrast to these others, these some, as, uh, as the apostles write in their letter, uh, there are some who've gone out troubling you and so forth, although, verse 24, we gave them no instructions, right? So there's an orderly path, path and there's a disorderly path the apostles and Barnabas and others were following this path of orderliness and there are these others who were disordered, who are unauthorized to do this. And on the way, Paul, Barnabas, and that little delegation are traveling and they're passing through Phoenicia and Samaria, uh, these, these Gentile or half-breed uh, regions of the promised land and they're describing the conversion of the Gentiles and notice the response that brings great joy it brings great joy to all the brothers. So you put chapter 14 at the very end. The church hears the response and hears the report of, of Paul and Barnabas, and there's great joy. These guys come and they pour water on that. You can't. You can't douse the flame of the Holy Spirit. They're hearing, and with great joy, they are believing, and they are, uh, and, and they are joining in Paul and, and Barnabas' ministry that the, that the God of Israel has now, be, has now shown himself to be the God of the world, the God of the Gentiles. So that's the controversy. That's the controversy. Are sinners justified through faith in Christ, or are they justified on the basis of their works? That brings us to verse 6 and following, the, the consideration of the apostles and elders, the, the Jerusalem Council, as it's called. There's a gathering, you see that, uh, and uh, to, uh, a, a consideration of the matter. There is great debate, we read there, verse number Seven why did the church in Antioch need to ask the church in Jerusalem, the apostles and elders, especially, the, the leadership there, what do they need to ask for their opinion upon this their teaching upon this controversy? It shows us a little insight into biblical New Testament ideas and mindset about the necessity and the importance of godly church leadership godly church governance we saw that last sunday where paul and barnabas went back to all the cities that they had previously gone to and preached the gospel and in every single one of those churches they not only preached the gospel again but they also established leadership and so the importance of church leadership and 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 the idea of the old testament proverb that in the multitude of counselors is much wisdom it's also important that they ask other churches especially the apostles and elders, uh, because of the sinfulness that we have. Again, this is not a golden age. Our human sinfulness is going to lead to false doctrine. It's going to lead to false living. Uh, It's going to lead not just to uh, divisions uh, of opinions, but even essential things like this. And so it just gives us a little insight into the, the importance of church governance that There needs to be many counselors to establish uh, the truth of the Lord, and that's important because of our sins and our struggles with them. And so you see here three speeches that are recorded by Luke. No doubt there are many more, but the ones that Luke records for us are Peter's. Uh, Quickly, a little report about Barnabas and Paul. And then, uh, really, the heart of it is James, his speech, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Notice Peter's speech there, verse 7 uh, down to verse number 11 and so forth. He, he reports that uh, he was sent by God to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, that's chapter 10. That's when he goes to the house of hold of Cornelius. Recall that story. He was in a trance. He saw that great sheet, all these animals, these unkosher animals walking around this great sheet and God tells him to rise, kill them all and eat them all. Right? And he's like, I've never eaten anything unclean in my entire life. But then he realizes that what God was showing him was not about food, per se, but it was about the fact that the Gentiles, the unclean masses of the world, were going to be made clean by the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. At the same time, he's having that vision. Cornelius is praying, and he is told by God to send a servant to go find this, to go find this Peter on a housetop in the city of Joppa. And they send for him and bring him and uh, that's all she wrote. We know the story. So he recounts that there, notice. But notice really the heart of what he's saying on this issue of how is a sinner made right with God. Notice he says there that the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe, verse number 7. And then in verse 8, God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving in the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. If God knows the heart, and that's a phrase right from the Old Testament, God knows the heart. And if God knows the heart of these Gentile sinners who've just believed and the Holy Spirit has been given to them, who are you to test God? Who are you to stand in the way of God? God knows their heart. What is an outward circumcision you're going to do for them if God's already justified them? God knows the hearts. Right? Remember they're thinking of custom, right? The custom of Moses. They're thinking just complete outward rites and outward ceremonies and Cultural distinctions between Jews and Gentiles. No, God knows the heart. God knows the heart. And it's God who bore witness. God's already done the work. God's done the work. He sent signs and wonders and miracles to them. And they've been cleansed, he says. Notice there's no distinction. God made no distinction between us and them. Having cleansed their hearts by faith. Notice that. Does Peter mention anything in his little sermon, little speech about works? Does he say anything about works? Do works play any role in the justification of sinners? God bore witness. And he says, how dare you put this yoke upon them? And notice this amazing phrase that neither we nor our fathers could ever keep. You think that the law, he's saying to these Pharisees, you think that the law was like a covenant of works that God established for you as the Pharisees, the creme de la creme, that you could distinguish yourself from the rest of the Jews in the world, that you think that, that by those works you can be saved. Your, our fathers could never bear this yoke and this burden. I mean, have you read the Old Testament lately? God comes to to Moses on Mount Sinai. He's there for 40 days and 40 nights, and he's reveling in the presence of God. He sees that sapphire pavement. He sees the presence of God, and God gives the law. And then all of a sudden he goes down. What does he see? It took them just a few days to get antsy and to start worshiping idols. Come on now. Come on, do we really think that they kept the law? No, we just read from Ezekiel. What's going to happen when you are unfaithful to God? You're going to be cast out. He showed, them for, uh, he showed patience to the Israelites for generation upon generation. He stretched out his hand. He put up with them. Eventually, he cast them out. He preserved for himself a remnant, just like he did in the days of Elijah. 7,000 went and bowed their knees to Baal and so forth. It's never been about works. It's never been about works. And so here's Peter saying that, no, God is the one who saved them. God knows their hearts. God testified to them with signs and wonders. God cleansed the Gentiles' hearts by faith. Why would we ever put a yoke upon them that neither neither we nor our fathers could ever keep? In other words, if I can put it this way, Let's say for sake of argument that Peter is the first pope. This is Papa Peter speaking. Papa Peter was the first Protestant. He taught here, he preached here, justification by faith apart from works. In other words, what we call justification by faith alone. Amen? There's no works here. There's no works here. If he's the first pope, he preached the gospel of justification because of the work of Jesus Christ alone, by God's grace alone, not on the basis of works, received by faith alone, period, under story. And it's teaching that goes contrary to that. That is the deviation. It's those who want to say works play some part. They are the ones here who are on the outside looking in. They're the some. They're the Pharisees. No, the... The gospel is proclaimed here by Papa Peter as being grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, and that's all she wrote. That's the end of the story. Barnabas and Paul were told here, there's a quick report about them, all the signs and wonders. They told all the things that God had done just as he had had testified uh, in the days of, uh, in that house of Cornelius. He had done so, chapter 13 and 14, testified to them, and then we come to James. Then we come to James. Again, it's all God. It's all God doing this work here. And James says some amazing things here. That God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people. Notice that phrase, verse, verse 14. That God has visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. If you know your Old Testament, what does that phrase sound like? A people for his name. Who does that sound like? In the Old Testament. This is a Sunday school question. You should all know this one, by the way. The Jews, right? The Israelites. They are described in Exodus chapter number 19. Right? They are, the, they are the, the, uh, the holy priesthood. They are the people for his own name. And here's James saying, now God is taking Gentiles and they are being brought into the kingdom." that God established in the days of Abraham and continued to go through Moses and so forth. And now the Gentiles are entering this kingdom. They are all together a people for his name. It's like the Gentiles are at the foot of Mount Sinai as that holy kingdom, that special people for the praise of God. The boundaries of God's kingdom are expanding. The prophets agree with this, he says. And again, just what James is saying here. Notice, it's, it's grace alone. It's God who's taken from the Gentiles, the people for his own name. And he quotes the prophet there, Amos chapter number nine, after this I will return. Speaking of when they were exiled and then God is going to return. I will rebuild the tent of David. That's fallen. The tent of David is describing the royal line, the Davidic kingship, the line of David. You know, the, the prophets describe the, Uh, The line of David, the, the roots are Jesse, but then you have the stump, which is David, and the whole tree, all the kings of Israel. But the prophets describe it, the fact that God has cut the tree down, and all that is left is a little stump. Isaiah 11, for example. There's a little stump left over. But one day, the prophet says, a little shoot is gonna come up out of that little stump of Jesse. Who's that little shoot? The Messiah, Jesus. The day is going to come, the prophet said, when that tent is going to be, that's fallen, is going to be rebuilt and restored. When was it rebuilt and restored? The resurrection. The resurrection. He's been declared Messiah, Lord, uh, Lord and Christ, Lord and Messiah. That's, Genesis, uh, that's uh, Acts 2. That's Acts 2. Why? That the remnant of mankind. In the the prophet Amos, he's speaking of the remnant of Edom, the Edomites. But now in the New Covenant, it's not just the Edomites, it's all the Gentiles, all the nations. Why is God going to rebuild this line of David in the resurrection of Jesus Christ so that all mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name? Not Not a word about works there. Not a scintilla, not an iota about you doing anything. God is doing, notice the eyes. God returns, God rebuilds, uh, God restores so that mankind may seek the Lord and the Gentiles who are called by my name. End of story. It's all about grace. It's all about grace in the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's what they considered, this, this doctrine. And they wrote this letter, this conciliar letter, this council's the council's letter. And just again to mention there, verse uh, 24, they're, they're in this letter, they, they, were, they want to tell the church in Antioch, you know, you've been troubled. You've been troubled by these men's teaching that come in amongst you. The, and this st- still happens. Okay, this still happens. We've had many people come, not just here, but in all churches across times and places, but here to it, this happens. People can come in and trouble us. To unsettle minds. We gave them no instructions, the apostles and elders said. No instructions on this. So they want to diffuse the situation as if this came from the apostolic church. No. And notice what they wrote. As James records their verse, uh, Luke records James saying, verse 19 and following, his, uh, his advice to the the apostles and elders, and then that gets written down in a letter, and then they send not just Barnabas and Paul, but they also send from Jerusalem, Judas, and Bar, uh, Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, uh, who are very uh, leading men among the brothers. So they send back from Antioch, Paul and Barnabas, and those who were with them, and they send from Jerusalem to Antioch, Judas, Barsabbas, and Silas with a letter and with words, right, to back up that letter, that all this is true, to authorize, to, uh, to, to summarize, to encourage these things. Now, what do they want the Gentiles to know? Do you have to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses to be saved? No. No. They give this little list. It might seem strange to us. Abstain from food, sacrifice to idols. There are four things. Food, sacrifice to idols. Blood, strangulation, sexual immorality. Why do they give these things? What are they saying here? Well, again, these are, they're, they're writing a letter to a, uh, a church in Antioch that itself is a mixed congregation of Jews and Gentiles who have now sent Paul and Barnabas, Jews, to Gentile lands to preach in synagogues and to preach in public to Gentiles. And they are now overseeing, the church in Antioch is now overseeing Gentile congregations uh, across uh, the Mediterranean, uh, modern-day uh, southeastern Turkey. And they get this short little list to abstain from these four things. Why? It's not... It... They've just, we've just established that justification was by faith alone, Right? Hello? Yes. Hello? Is this on? Faith alone, right? Okay. Good. Justification by faith alone. They're not now sort of, uh, they're not saying, okay, but now you've got to keep these four things. You know, put away the Old Testament law, but we got four little easy, tried and true little ways to, to live the blessed Christian life. If you just keep these four things, you'll stay in the grip of God's grace. So they're not, on the one hand, saying that, uh, or the one they're saying that you're just, you're just by faith alone, they're not taking that away by adding these four things. So they're not laying the red carpet out, and then once you get in the red carpet, pull the rug out from underneath you. So these are not about obedience and laws and somehow to, to get more justification or to make sure that you don't fall from justification. No, that's not what it's about at all. They're writing to a Gentile congregation, again in Antioch, that's overseeing a missionary work to all these Gentile peoples throughout the, the, uh, the ancient world that were living amongst synagogues out of which some had come to be believers in Jesus. And they did not want to jeopardize the cause of the gospel in the context of Jewish uh, script. Uh, conscious, uh, 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 scrupulous, outward ceremonies. And so they're telling these Gentile Christians to abstain from the kinds of things that the Gentiles did, especially when they went to their Gentile temples to worship their gods like Jupiter and Mercury and and others. And at those places, you would eat uh, food sacrificed to idols, and the Jews were scandalized by that. You would eat meat that hadn't been uh, drained of its blood, and it wasn't kosher. Uh, you, ate, you ate meat from animals that were strangled. strangled. They weren't uh, cleaned the way that the Jews required. And there would be sexual immorality accompanied with all that pagan worship. So they're telling the Gentiles, don't use your new liberty in Christ as a license to scandalize... And to put stumbling blocks before the Jews. The principle is the same for us that our love for our neighbor needs to shape the liberty that we have in Christ. That we don't want to lay stumbling blocks before people. And typically, this, you know, people ask, well, how does that apply? You know, what's an example of that? And, you know, an easy one that we always think about is drinking alcohol. That's not, a, that's not a ceremonial Old Testament law uh, and so forth, but it's one of those things where, as a believer, especially as Reformed Christians, right, when we smoke our pipes, our cigars, you know, we drink our scotch, you know, we, we want to be really Reformed guys here, we drink our IPA, you know. But we have to use love in the exercise of our liberty so that we don't stumble others. We don't stumble others. It's not exactly the same, but it's kind of a similar Idea. And so the apostles were telling the Gentile believers not to put up stumbling blocks towards the gospel. And that's what happens. It's, it's, we become the offense, right? That's the problem. We're the offensive thing. And so people won't even get past us to get to Jesus, who himself is offensive uh, to sinner. So that's their letter. And then we see the, the response, finally. The congregation, the congregation in Antioch. They, they go back. Uh, in verse 32 31 says very very simply very clearly just as we read at the beginning of the story when Paul and Barnabas and those others from Antioch made their way through Phoenicia and Samaria as they reported the gospel come to the Gentiles there was great joy to all the brothers and the story ends on that same note there was great joy they rejoiced because of the letter's encouragement. Why? Because this letter was saying you belong to the people of God. You belong. You've believed in Jesus as Messiah, and he's cleansed your heart of all of your sins. Yeah, we know that you're not as holy as these Pharisaical brothers. We know that you've not kept these laws like they have. We know they don't have that physical mark of circumcision like they do. We know that you haven't done this, 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 and this like they have, but you are acceptable to God. They rejoice because of its encouragement. In the same way, of course, we want to take note of that for our own selves here at OURC. Again, that we don't lay out any burdens above and beyond more than what scripture already says following jesus is hard enough take up the cross who wants to be a person carrying a cross through a city no one but take up your cross follow jesus count the cost of following him he's a scandal he's uh he's a stumbling block to people he's controversial Following Jesus is difficult in the world. Don't make it harder. Don't make it harder. Well, you know, you, you have to wear a suit and tie to be reformed. To belong to this church, you know, you've you got to have them psalms memorized. And whatever it might be, you know. Have you asked John Calvin into your heart lately? We have all kinds of little petty things. You know, sometimes they're they're funny, but we don't want to add anything above and beyond what Scripture requires, which is to take up our cross and follow Christ, to forsake ourselves and to embrace Christ. When we do that, he cleanses our hearts by faith. And that's what makes us acceptable to God. And that's why we are a part of the people of God. And a sinner comes in and says, "What what must I do to be saved? believe in Jesus and you will be saved so they rejoiced because that letter encouraged them in that kind of a way uh, and then they uh, the Jerusalem delegation uh, Silas and uh, Judas Barsabbas, they encourage and strengthen the brothers with many words we saw this earlier in chapter 14 uh, the same the same idea and the Antioch teachers Paul and Barnabas they remain notice teaching and preaching the word of the Lord so they just pick up where they left off at the end of chapter number 14. They continue teaching the word. One of the big takeaways up to this point, I mentioned at the beginning, this is a a turning point in the book of Acts. So up to this point, 15 chapters. I hope you've seen this one big, there's a lot of things to see, but this one big thing so far, this one big thing, we'll see it again, but this one big thing so far. One of the takeaways of Acts 1 through 15 is this. The unity of the word And the Spirit together. To be filled with the Spirit, we've seen, is to be filled with the Word of God. And to be filled as a believer and as a church family, to be filled with the Word of God is to be a Spirit filled church. And we saw last Sunday the purpose, the last couple of Sundays actually, The purpose for asking God to fill us with his Holy Spirit is what? When Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit, what did he do? He spoke the word of God. Boldly. As we we read these chapters, and I pray and trust, maybe you go back and read them all as much as you can in one sitting. Notice the unity of the word and spirit. They go together. They go together. To have one is to have the other. To have the other is to have the one. And so as a church family, as we pray that the Lord would fill us with his Holy Spirit continually, as he's already done once and for all as we come to Christ and he's baptized us in his Holy Spirit, we pray that he would enable us by that Spirit to speak the word of the Lord, the word of the Spirit and that people's ears would be open, their hearts would be soft, their minds would be prepared, and their lives would be ready to hear that gospel and to submit their lives to Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our great God, our merciful God, we thank you for the word, and we thank you for these chapters so far, and we look forward to what's coming. Uh, we ask, Lord, that you would continually uh, uh, stoke that flame of the Spirit of God amongst us as we read your words and we seek to understand them rightly and to apply them to our lives. And we, we ask for your Spirit to fill us, Lord, to fill us so that we might speak the word with boldness. And so give us, Lord, we pray, success in answering objections, in answering questions, in answering uh, all the objectionable things about what it means to be a Christian and give us success by your Holy Spirit, Lord, in the lives of others to come and to genuinely believe in Jesus. You pray that you would use us this week, empowered, empowered, Lord, by your word and spirit to bring the good news that sinners are saved by Jesus Christ's grace received by faith alone apart from any works that a person can even imagine doing. That was so true of us, Lord. Help us to remember that's true of everyone, and not to lay down any more burdens. You accepted us by faith, Lord. How would we ever put a yoke upon people's necks that we ourselves couldn't even bear? Forgive us for that. Empower us, we pray. And now, as we come to the Lord's table, refresh us to all this. To all of this, we ask it in Jesus' name, and all of God's people say. Amen.